We are starting, though, on a much sadder note and talking more about the aftermath, the death of RCMP Constable Shaylin Yang in a Burnaby Park. It continues to resonate with police forces throughout the province. Some of those police forces are now looking closer at their policies, especially when it comes to assisting bylaw officers and specifically in cases where there are known issues of perhaps aggression and big gaps when it comes to mental health and addiction services. Well, Victoria Police Chief Del Manick joins me now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Jill. What well, is such a horrible story, and as we're starting to learn more details about what happened when a Burnaby RCMP officer was killed when checking on somebody, we now know from those details of the police report, she was actually trying to save somebody. She saw this person in the tent, was unresponsive, and announced she was coming in to use naloxone, and that fight ensued, and she was killed. When you hear about that and hear those details, what goes through your mind? Well, first off, I got to say it's a tragedy in every sense of the word. And, you know, police officers are working on the front lines. And and here in Victoria, we see very similar incidents where we're engaging with uh, many of the people that are marginalized, vulnerable, the unhoused uh, population. Uh, But it really is with heavy hearts that we send our condolences to uh, Constable Shailen Yang and her family, her friends and her colleagues. Um, It's just it can't help but start thinking about could this have been avoided and, and what could have been done differently. And certainly in Victoria, uh, we're kind of re-examining our approach to um, making contact and engaging with many of the people that are unhoused in our community. So what are the protocols right now or is the protocol if your officers get called to a, a tent city, an encampment or even one tent in a park in Victoria, what, what kind of what safety practices are in place there? Sure. So it really all comes down to ensuring that it's paramount for having officers that are safe. Uh, In Victoria here, we have such a a significant challenge with many people that are living unsheltered in our parks and on many of our boulevards that we actually have a special duty and a special detail where bylaw officers, uh, Victoria police officers will go out. We go out in pairs. Uh, We just cannot send one officer out. It's just not safe. Uh, with a level of um, uh, attitude and demeanor and uh, active resistance that our officers encounter. So we're actually there keeping the peace, allowing city bylaw to be able to engage with the campers and do their job. But uh, city bylaws made it quite clear to us that if the police weren't there in a support role, keeping them safe, uh, they wouldn't be able to get their job done. There's just so much non-compliance and aggression and hostility uh, towards any type of um, uh, bylaw officers, the police, and and any type of enforcement that uh, may be taking place. And was that the policy before then, as far as, or that was the policy before uh, Shailene Yang was killed, that a single officer wouldn't go to an encampment with a bylaw officer? It was always to be two? Yeah, it was always two, and we've been doing that probably, I would say, for probably the last uh, year to maybe 18 months. Uh, we've always had that policy. We we quite early on uh, determined that it just wasn't safe to send one police officer. Because what happens is, you know, when somebody comes out of their tent and uh, and they need to be de-escalated, it takes time. And, uh, and we have no idea if this person 
uh, it has mental health uh, concerns, if they're uh, addicted to, to drugs, and what state they're in. And so what happens is it takes a lot of time and effort to be able to de-escalate. And sometimes uh, the individual that we're trying to engage with uh, creates such a fuss that other people then join. Uh, and so we just need to have a minimum of two officers there. And I will tell you that in some parks, we're actually reassessing that of whether we need actually more officers attending just to make sure that our officers are safe when they're engaging with campers. What does that do for even your personnel levels or uh, the amount of time that officers are spending dealing with people that are living in parks or living in tents? If you now go to that plan or go to that model, if three officers need to go, uh, how, how much uh, does that put a strain on the force? Well, it's significant. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, we're under-resourced here uh, in the city of Victoria, and, uh, you know, every officer that needs to respond or needs to cover and make sure that the scene is safe in one of our parks is one last officer that's out taking another 911 call. So certainly it creates pressures, but uh, again, uh, officer safety is paramount, and we want to make sure that uh, when we're there supporting bylaw, it's done in, you know, the, the most humane, compassionate manner. And, and that just isn't possible with having one officer. And like I say, sometimes with two. The other thing, Joe, we're finding is uh, it's not just the changing attitude and behavior and demeanor that we're seeing in our camps and on our streets. Uh, we're locating weapons, uh, makeshift weapons. Uh, we recovered a loaded handgun that was found in an unoccupied tent uh, not all that long ago. Uh, lots of replica guns, lots of knives, hammers, uh, and we actually recently just posted a picture of uh, a kind of a, a makeshift metal ball where somebody had filled it with concrete, welded spikes onto this metal ball filled with concrete and attached a metal pole to it so they could essentially swing it around like a baseball bat. And, and, and I can assure you that if somebody ever used that as a weapon, uh, the person on the receiving end would receive serious injuries, if not, if not be killed. Hmm. Are you noticing as well an increase in not only weapons that you're seeing in some of these tents, but also aggression or hostility specifically towards law enforcement? Uh, yeah, we are. Uh, it primarily, uh, it's just a lack of respect for our city bylaw. Uh, that's where it starts. They're, we're there supporting uh, their job to be able to actively engage with campers. And the irony of it is that when city bylaw go, they're, they're a lot of times just checking base with someone to make sure that they have the necessary service and the support. And you know what? You might have to take your tent down uh, for the day uh, because we don't want to have any entrenchment within our parks and whatnot. But it's done through a lot of de-escalation and a lot of discussion. But what we are finding, though, is that in many cases... Uh, the the person that we're trying to engage with is uh, amped up and they're already anti-authority, non-compliant and, and actively resistant. So that makes the job for bylaw and, of course, the police who are there to make sure that the scene is safe for everyone and we're keeping the peace. That's one of the key things that the police are doing is keeping the peace. It just certainly makes that that much more challenging. Are, are there times as well, like you said, in, in some cases, this is bylaw going to tell somebody, like you said, oh, maybe you have to pack your tent up for the day or, or even doing kind of a, a checking in on them. There must be times, I would imagine, when your officers as well as bylaw encounter people who have overdosed. 
oh yeah, uh, that happens frequently. Um, in fact, sometimes multiple times in a day. Uh, I just went uh, and did a walk along with some of my frontline officers on Thursday, and I'm actually going to be going out later this week again. And they literally were pointing to me and said, somebody overdosed and died in that tent. There's another one. There's another one. And they're pointing to it. And this is just all in the last number of weeks. Uh, and so it's, it was actually quite shocking for me to see the toxicity of drugs that are on our streets and how many people are overdosing. And, and here's the other thing that, that I found is, um, is interesting is we need to make sure that we categorize what we're dealing with properly. Uh, is this a housing issue? Uh, maybe at one point it was. What we're dealing with is uh, severe mental illness, people that are caught up in cycles of abuse with no ability to break free, uh, people who are prone to violence, who, who are trending towards antisocial behavior, and also people that are drug addicted, uh, people that are heavy users, uh, and they have no place to go. Uh, they've been evicted in, in Victoria here. S- several of them have been evicted multiple times. And so they actually feel safe using in a park or in a tent where they feel that if they overdose, their colleague or somebody is going to come help them. However, if they do that in a housing uh, supportive housing unit, they're just around with four walls and they're actually fearful of overdosing and nobody being there to, uh, to save them. So there, there are a combination of issues that we're dealing with, but not all of it is related to people actually looking for a home. Right. Well, and this can't be, I mean, a sustainable model. It can't go, uh, it's two officers now. If you go to three officers because of the increased aggression and hostility, uh, people overdosing in their tents, I mean, this is not sustainable. So how do you see this changing or what needs to change, do you think, even to start trying to find a solution here? Well, I think the first thing we need to admit is that the current model that we have isn't working. Why don't we start with that? Um, then we need to bring in all of the partners, uh, decision makers to the table. And it sounds easier said than done, um, but we need the police there. We need social service agencies there. We need BC housing. We need government agencies. And certainly we need our health authority. Uh, that's at the table. And we got to really start looking at all four pillars and not just focus on harm reduction. Now, I'm a fan of harm reduction. I'm all for uh, naloxone. Uh, clean needles, clean drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, replacement therapy. But at, at some point, we've also have to look at prevention. We have to look at treatment. And we can't lose sight that enforcement still is one of the key four pillars. And, and those three pillars don't seem to get as much attention. And so I think that anytime you focus on any one pillar at the expense of the other pillars, you're probably going to see the situation that we currently find ourselves in. All right. Uh, Victoria Police Chief Del Manick, thank you so much. Uh, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Well, just before the break, we heard from the couple with three kids. They were ready to purchase a two-bedroom condo, about 1,200 square feet, a lot bigger than what they are living in in their rental, but were told they could not purchase that because the condo building in Pitt Meadows, the strata rules are you cannot have more than four people living in a two-bedroom condo. And they say they have run into several other buildings where they would love to make an offer as well, but those rules are in place. So we're 
We're going to open up the phone lines on this to see what you have to say in just a few moments. But before we do, I want to bring on Edward Eviston, who is a realtor with Remax Select Properties. He is not the realtor for this couple, but talking in general about how often this kind of thing happens. Edward, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. So I know you're not the realtor for the couple that we've heard from as far as their difficulties trying to buy a place, being told that because they have five people, they exceed the number of people allowed in a two-bedroom unit. That number is four. How often do you see or hear about this happening? I mean, that specific case, not very often. I mean, more the more often scenario I've seen is in age-restricted buildings where they have a 19-plus, you know, or a 25-plus or whatever their restriction may be with people that have had children that, you know, were previously childrenless having to move out and or sell because, you know, they're now in violation of a strata bylaw. And, you know, that, and, and, I, and I do know that that has been enforced by the courts as well. And they've, they've upheld that and, you know, forced people to move out. It, it's one of those things where it's, it's probably the rarer scenario where a strata is going to be that stringent around their, their bylaws, especially with, you know, a family that has three children. And in this scenario where it, it sounded like there was a little bit of a precedent for at least the renovations they were looking to make. And uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think you, you know, you, you, you see it on a, on a, a rather regular basis when it comes to bylaws because they're, you know, they're bylaws and strata councils look at them as being there for a reason and, you know, helping them manage the building. I, I do personally think that they take them too far, though. Right, because it was unclear how often this happens and that this couple said that every place they looked at had these rules. But what was unclear was how stringent, I guess, stratas are in enforcing the rules or giving uh, some, in some cases, like you said, if they could renovate or show that there actually was enough space, if they were actually enforcing the rules and, and prohibiting people from moving into two-bedroom places because they have five people. Right. And, and, and I, I, I've not seen that very often at all. The, you know, the most often bylaw you'll deal with in, in residential real estate is usually in relation to pets or rentals. And, and I've lived in buildings before where there is a pet restriction and Strata Council makes allowances to allow other families to have more than, you know, the allowable two dogs or, you know, so they can have three. And so there's definitely a decent amount of discretion on behalf of the Strata Council to, to a, to make an exception uh, based on a particular case. Surprise they didn't in in this particular scenario. That being said, I'm not a hundred percent acquainted with the building. I, I know the, I know the story, but I'm not the realtor that was dealing with that family or that strata council. So. Right. No, and, and I appreciate that, that you're still able to talk to us about this. Do you know what the, the reasons would be as far as, would it be strata councils that uh, based on maybe the added noise, perhaps with more people, uh, because it doesn't seem like it's a fire code issue. Like they said, even the one bedroom that they kind of wanted to renovate the laundry room had a sprinkler in it, so it fell under the, the allowable rules there. Do you get a sense on why strata councils have these rules and enforce these rules i think it's 
it's a case by case thing where dependent on who is on the council, how long they've been in the building, you know, what their age demographics going to be, they may perceive that type of sweet crowding as I'm, I'm sure that's how they're perceiving it in this situation as yeah, being a, being a concern for noise, maybe a concern for a precedent moving forward where they're then allowing you know, the bylaws to be broken in, in other areas. So that would be my guess here. It's similar to, you know, if you go out to White Rock, for instance, there's many buildings that are age restricted, be it that it used to be a form of a retirement community. And they're not overly open to the ideas of, of now breaking those bylaws and allowing children to their building because they're set in their, in their way of life. They've lived in that space and in that building for a long time. And they're hoping to keep things the same as opposed to making change. And in my opinion, positive change because you're, you know, you're, we're faced with a, with a housing issue where people are looking for these creative solutions to allow their families adequate space to grow. And, uh, and, and in this scenario, that's obviously not been successful. And when we see so many people, like you said as well, and in this case too, this was a young couple saying that rents are so high right now, they have their down payment. What they really want to do is to be paying into a mortgage instead, instead of putting all of that money into rent. Uh, Our provincial government has said they'd like to change things as far as stratas being able to ban rentals or limit the number of rentals. Do you think we need changes that maybe take some of those powers away from strata councils to open up more housing? Uh, I, I do, you know, with, I think within reason, be it I, you know, Strata Council's in place because it's supposed to be the voice of the collective for the building, which is not always the case. I, I've been on Strata Council's before and, you know, in, was, was in, in one case enticed to become a member of a council because I was younger than the average person on council and they felt that, you know, I might have ideas that would be a little bit different than the crowd that they were dealing with. And, you know, hopefully we could, you know, make some, you know, positive strides in terms of changing the building. And, and rentals is one of them because I, for a long time, I think the perception around a renter or a tenant was somebody who, you know, wasn't an owner and, and thus they, they're probably not going to be investing or taking care of the, the unit or the building the way an owner would. But the way rent prices are in Vancouver now, I mean, you, you know, you've got lawyers, you've got doctors, you've got high-end professionals that are in rentals paying an exorbitant amount of money in order to live in and around the city that they work in. So I, I really don't perceive that as being a problem. And in fact, most of the time when I'm selling Strata, having the ability to rent increases the value. It doesn't decrease it. So, you know, having, having you know, more options for a purchaser is, is always going to be positive, in my opinion. No, and you make an interesting point, and you're right, every time we talk about this on this show, it does seem like we get a lot of calls or a lot of feedback that tends to be anti-rental or anti-renter, that there's something wrong or it's going to to make the building less desirable if it's open, opened up to, to rentals. And maybe that is a very outdated and, and not applicable kind of mindset anymore. Yeah, and uh, I, I, that's what I personally believe. I mean, I, I, I would say more than half of my, you know, my friends rent and they, and they, you know, 
college educated, some of them with master's degrees, you know, earning a decent living and just they're, you know, they're, they're unable to uh, save the requisite amount of money to provide a down payment because of how high rents are in Vancouver. So they continue to rent, you know, they take care of their space. Um, they decorate their spaces. They have nice furniture. They're not, it's not like they're miscreants or, you know, transient human beings. They're, you know, they, they're, they're renters in Vancouver, and as we know, it's it's not especially affordable to live here. No, it's very, very true, as has been pointed out in the story of this couple and their kids as well. Uh, do you see things changing, or do you think things will have to change then as far as uh, people trying to purchase homes, trying to get into the housing market, and here's just a, another barrier? I mean, I think I see things changing all the time, not always for the better. But in, in this scenario, I do believe they've already been, like they've been talking about for a number of years, again, a lot of pontificating, but uh, around whether or not to, you know, limit the powers of Stratacorps, have more allowable bylaws. So, you know, not allowing buildings to, you know, discriminate based on age or, you know, the size of your family or how, you know, however many, within reason, of course. And, and, and I'm hopeful that that is something we see in the near future. All right. Well, Edward, thank you so much for joining us and for talking a bit more about this today. Appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Phone lines are open talking about the story of a family of five told they couldn't purchase a two-bedroom condo because the strata rules say four people in that size unit is the max. What are your thoughts on this? Let's go to the phones. And Karen in Surrey, good afternoon. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? I'm good, thanks. I just wanted to chime in a bit because I, I all I'm hearing is the strata council, strata council. I want to remind people because I sit on the Strata Council. I've sat on council for over 25 years, various councils. And council has an obligation to enforce the rules that are voted in by the owners. Strata Council has authority to make decisions uh, that are laid out in the bylaws. Now, people have recourse. They can go, if, if people don't feel that they're being represented by their council properly, they can file a uh, something with the, um, I can't remember what it's called, uh, it, it's with the uh, Strata Act. However, uh, I feel for these people, but I actually have personally experienced people who have lived above me that had six people in the house, and it was uh, young children. It was unbearable. We ended up moving out. So when you think about uh, the rules, the rules are there for a reason. We have no, we have no rentals in our complex. Uh, owners don't want to have rentals in their complex. It was uh, recently it was mentioned, and there was a petition that was sent around about it. But we um, saying that they don't want rentals. So in the end, we have an obligation as council to enforce the rules that are voted on by the owners. Council doesn't make the rules; the owners do, and that's something that is it needs to be uh, adhered to. And I, I feel for the family, though I understand they're a young family. Um, it's, it's just, uh, unfortunately, that's the way it is. 
All right, Karen, thanks for that. And that's uh, an excellent point. You're right. That sometimes uh, does get overlooked that it's not the strata council just coming up with these rules and deciding on what to enforce on their own. You're absolutely right. It is the owners that have voted on this and have voted to have that rule with the limits when it comes to the number of people. Thank you for that. Let's go to Peter in Surrey. Hey, Peter. Hey, Joe. I'm going to go off. You know, I'm going to go off again. I know. I can't help myself. <laughs> um, I agree with the first caller to an extent. I'm on startup count, so I'm also an owner, and I also have rental property. So rules are rules for a reason. You want to let these people in with three kids, and somebody else wants to come in with four kids. It's, you have to have rules for a reason. And I don't understand. People don't like the rules, so they go on the radio, they complain, get everybody through sword film, and change the rules. It makes no sense to me. There are rules for a reason. I don't want six people. I don't want six people living above me or next to me either. That that's all what the rules are for. And for people always to say, you know what? I don't like the rules. I'm on council. Somebody brought in. We have two dogs, uh, 18 inches or 14 inches or some whatever it is. Somebody brought bought a big dog, and they thought they could just buy a big dog. People don't want that. The rules are two dogs, so we told them to get rid of the dog, or they got to move out. Now we're in a court battle with a CRA with them. It's ridiculous. People, there's rules for a reason. People always whine and snivel about following rules. I don't like the rule, so I'm going to go and break the rules. I don't like this. I'm going to cry about this. There's a rule. Go find someone else to live. It's not that hard. I don't like the rule. i got to drive 100 kilometers on the freeway. That's the rule. I don't like it, but that's what I have to abide by. And, and the first caller was bang on. We don't make the rules. We abide by what owners want. All right. And that's the way it should be. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. Peter, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I do want to say the couple that came forward, uh, they did come forward to kind of just shed light on this. I wouldn't call them whiners or complainers. I know they're frustrated, but let's uh, not call them uh, or put them in that category. Their, their reason for doing that was given the shortage of housing to draw more attention to that. But I totally get to what you're saying. Let's try and get a couple more callers in here. Uh, Jimmy, also in Surrey, what are your thoughts on this? Well, the previous two guys stole my thunder. <laughs> but I'm going to say something slightly uh, advisable to the young couple, since you say they're not whiners, even though they probably are. But listen, her realtors, those guys are BS. They should be telling these guys, listen, right now it's not even the time to buy a townhome. The prices are stable, and they're probably going to go down a little further. So take your sweet time. See if you can join up with somebody or buy a smaller house outside of the periphery that they're looking at. All right. All right, Jimmy. Thanks for that. I mean, that might not be what they want to do. And they they had said, too, they don't want to keep putting all of this money into rent. But I get what you're saying. Uh, Ron in New West, you get the last word. You've got about 30 seconds. Yeah, I echo the other callers. I'm on council. Our rules are there for a reason. But on the other hand, there are now four three bedroom condos for sale in Maple Ridge. They should have the realtor looking at them as well. There are many townhouses available for decent prices right now in the Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows uh, area. They just need to get out there and look and find what they need, not try and make something that doesn't work fit. All right. Perfect place to leave that conversation. If you didn't get through on the buzz line or sorry, on the open line, call me on the buzz line and leave your comments there. 
Thanks for being with us. Well, every time, every year around this time, we get the list of the five scariest and least wanted trick-or-treaters, the ones you don't want at your doorstep this Halloween. It's tied into Halloween, but it's a very serious list. And looking at it this year, the individual at the top of the list is a man who is alleged to be guilty of murder in Vancouver. Well, joining us to talk more about that and who else is on this list is Linda Annis, who is the executive director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, I know it's always done. It's a kind of a fun way of doing this and tying it to Halloween, but again, a very serious subject. So can you tell us a little bit about who is on this list? I sure can, and it is a very serious topic, and we're trying to encourage people, if they know something, to please, please report it. We've got uh, five very interesting characters, if you will. We've got um, uh, Robbie Calhio, who is wanted for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and for being unlawfully at large. Uh, He recently escaped... um, confinement and he um, there's a, actually a bolo reward for him of $250,000 out as well as uh, the Crime Stoppers uh, reward of $5,000. So if somebody knows something about it, please, please, please report it. We also have um, uh, Armandeep Rai who is wanted for sexual assault uh, with a weapon and he also has 15 other charges uh, that are pending against him. And John Norman McKenzie, who there's a Canada-wide warrant for him, and he's wanted for being off, uh, unlawfully at large. Uh, he's been convicted already of second-degree murder and armed robbery, and he's out there somewhere. Uh, we have um, Timothy um, Bornick, uh, and he's wanted for assault with a weapon. And last but certainly not least is Rico Zanoli, and he is wanted... Um, for being unlawfully at large and causing bodily harm and assault with a weapon. So not any of these guys that you want uh, trick-or-treating at your door, for sure. Uh, No, or anywhere near you, uh, I would imagine. Uh, What are you telling people then, and and their pictures have been released or or made sure that they're out there available for people? I, I believe they're on our website as well. What are you telling or asking of the public if they happen to know anything about any of these individuals? Well, we know someone somewhere knows something, and we're asking them to report and to report immediately. Either call the police, or if you're not comfortable in doing that, if you maybe are afraid um, that your identity might be revealed, to call Crime Stoppers. If you call Crime Stoppers, you remain anonymous. So no one, it doesn't matter if the, these individuals are caught, go to court again or whatever, nobody will ever know who it was that reported on them. So Crime Stoppers is a great way to uh, be able to provide information about these criminals or any other criminals, for that matter, anonymously. Do you ever find people or people questioning the anonymity of Crime Stoppers or I guess looking for the um, reassurance that, yes, it is absolutely anonymous and, and there isn't a way somebody's going to kind of break that system and figure out who you are? That system is protected by the Supreme Court of Canada. We don't take your name. We don't take your address. We don't trap IP addresses. Any information that you might give us that would reveal your identity is removed from your tip. And, you know, Crime Stoppers, Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers has been around for almost 40 years. 
And as a result of this program, we've had more than 8,500 arrests and a half a billion, not million, dollars worth of property and drugs uh, recovered. So the program works super, super well, and one should never, ever fear about their identity being revealed. Uh, that kind of answered my question. I was going to ask you as well, how successful is it when you do something like this? And again, uh, tying it to a holiday or a day like Halloween uh, to, to talk about that these are the scariest and least wanted. How successful are campaigns like this in catching or uh, getting uh, arrests against these individuals or any individuals? It's hugely successful. It's reminding people about the Crime Stoppers program and making sure that if you know something and you may be just reluctant to report, that there is an opportunity for you to report anonymously. And I think that's critical because if you're dealing with some of these individuals, you know, people fear for their own personal safety. And Crime Stoppers, of course, offers that anonymity. And do you find too? It's it's kind of reminding people. And when you talked about the first uh, the first uh, person, uh, Robbie Al Khalil, who has been in the news, so we've had news stories on him. Does it kind of just uh, remind people, or or put it back uh, to to jog someone's memory? Maybe they hadn't thought about it, and maybe they do have information that could be helpful. Yes, and oftentimes people think, well, I know just a little piece. Uh, and so it's not worthwhile telling anybody. Well, sometimes that little piece can be just what uh, solves the case and, you know, apprehends some of these individuals. You know, it happens very regularly, but people shouldn't hold back and you know, be judging themselves as to whether this is valuable information. Just give it to Crime Stoppers or give it to the police and let the experts decide. And in this particular uh, case, or today, releasing these five individuals, uh, and uh, I guess it's kind of obvious why these five individuals, given what you just said about what each one is wanted for, why they would be on this list and at the top of this list. Uh, But what is it like having to narrow it down to just five individuals that you're putting out there today? It's hugely difficult because there's so many folks that uh, are out there. We know that we have this ongoing gang issue, not just certainly in the greater Vancouver area, but throughout British Columbia. And we know that many people know about what's going on, but they're just reluctant to report it. The police can't be everywhere. So if you know something, say something. Don't, don't be afraid. Just come forward to Crime Stoppers or to the police. And I would imagine that is one of the most difficult things that the people are afraid and people, if they do know something, they don't want to to perhaps get involved or be run that risk, even though, like you said, you can do it anonymously, but run that risk of of somehow maybe being found out or getting involved. I guess it is easier for people to, to just not to get involved. But then again, that's probably why in some cases these guys are still at large. That's absolutely why if people don't report You know, the police can't be everywhere. If we see something as a resident and as a citizen, we it's our job to provide that information to help the police. We all play a role in the public safety in our community, not just the police. Do you find when people do make tips to Crime Stoppers, are they doing it hoping that they are going to get the financial reward? Or do people do it, and even in cases where maybe their information does lead to the arrest and conviction, they're not in it for the reward? Most people are not in it for the reward. We, um, based on the number of tips that um, are successful each year, I think last year we had something like 175 arrests and we paid 
I would venture less than half a dozen um, uh, reward payments. So most of the people aren't in it for the money. They're in it to make their community safer. And Linda, in your time with Crime Stoppers, how does this list compare as far as when we look at the severity of the crimes that these individuals are accused of? How does this compare to perhaps what we've seen on Crime Stoppers lists in the past? Well, we've had, uh, unfortunately, some very bad, bad individuals in the past. And this list uh, certainly is no exception. Um, none of these people would I want to, to be my neighbors or my friends or or business associates. They're just not good people, and we need to make sure that they get arrested. All right. Again, I believe we have posted the photos and that story on our website. Linda, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to date on this latest campaign. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.